Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Agnes Arnold Forster about her new book, The Cancer Problem, Malignancy in 19th Century Britain, published by Oxford University Press in January of this year. Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster is a historian of medicine, work, and the emotions. She received her PhD from King's College London in 2017. She is now a postdoctoral research fellow in the Social Studies of Medicine Department at McGill University. Her second book, A Social, Cultural, and Emotional History of Britain, uh, British Surgery, <laughs> sorry, uh, is under contract with Manchester University Press, so we have that to look forward to. Uh, Agnes, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, would you start by telling us something about yourself and also how you developed an interest in looking at cancer from this perspective? Of course. So um, I'm a historian by training. I did a history degree and then a master's in the history of science, technology and medicine. Um, And while I was finishing up my master's, my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer. Um, And in some ways, this is the kind of impetus to write this book. Um, I noticed that the history of cancer very much focused on the 20th century and far less on the 19th. Um, and also it, the research I conducted, the writing of it all took place against the backdrop of this sort of very personal healthcare experience or, or experience of my other loved ones, um, ill health. Um, so it was both a kind of intellectual professional project, but also a personal and emotional one, um, which hopefully has made it a more humane book or a book that is more attuned to the the very personal or interpersonal stories of cancer in the past. Yeah, and I, I love it that you take that approach because it, it was to me a humane book and it's difficult to think of cancer without feeling uh, some kind of emotion about it, whether that's fear, loathing uh, or whatever. Um, And I really like the way you start the book by setting up a description of the Middlesex Hospital in London and the experiences of the women who were treated there because they were mostly women, or maybe they were all women. And the way you describe it really brings, as you say, humanity to the subject, uh, because as many of the medical men you quote say, it was a dreadful disease. And it still is, but it was dreadful in different ways then. So can you describe a bit the experiences of the women at the Middlesex Hospital? The thing that's so um, that was so innovative about the Middlesex Hospital, or the thing that they tried to do to set themselves apart from competing institutions, was that unlike hospitals, most hospitals in the 18th century and other hospitals in the 19th century, the Middlesex um, explicitly admitted patients with cancer. So most other hospitals at this time um, would not accept patients who were in, as they put it, a dying condition or had incurable or terminal illnesses like cancer. Um, and so the Middlesex really offers something to patients that they can't find elsewhere, um, which is a dedicated space for care and treatment of this particular disease. Um, and so for poor women in this period, and the hospital did actually have a men's cancer ward, but the record of that um, ward doesn't either was never made or doesn't survive. Probably it's the latter. Um, but for, for poor people living in Britain at the end of the 19th, 18th century and beginning of the 19th, cancer was a disease that they had, could do very little about, and there was very little care and dedicated attention available to them. 
Um, and so the Middlesex really sort of pitches itself as a solution to this problem. It says we will admit people regardless of whether there is any hope for a cure or any kind of um, realistic treatment pathway, as we would now put it. Hmm. Uh, and before we get into the chapters, because I, I'd like to go through the chapters one by one as, as you've organized this book so well, uh, but I wanted to bring up a term that you use frequently throughout the book, which is medical men. Uh, of course, we wouldn't say doctors or physicians, as this was a time when the professionalization of medicine was creating new categories and hierarchies. But the term men recurs in striking contrast to their mainly female patients at the Middlesex Hospital and other places as well. What was the importance of the medical men female cancer patient juxtaposition? Well, as you say, um, medical men is a really useful kind of catch-all term and accurately describes, I think, a lot of the people working in this period. Um, and it also accurately re- describes their gender because um, to be kind of an orthodox healthcare professional in the early part of the 19th century, um, you were a man, you had to be a man. Um, women are only admitted to the um, professions much later in the 19th century. And although there are women who provide you know, more alternative or fringe healthcare services. Um, if you are working in a hospital as a doctor or a surgeon or in any of that kind of capacity, you were a man. Um, and that juxtaposition between male doctor and female patient, I think is really important. Um, there's a lot to be said about this period in terms of the development of a new kind of power imbalance or, or systematic hierarchy between um, doctor and patient, the development of what Foucault calls the medical gaze, um, and often that gaze was gendered, this sort of um, ability or this newfound ability for medical men to observe their patients, make decisions about what their um, best interests might be, um, and to establish very clear um, a very clear distinction between um, doctor and patient uh, intervene in their autonomy, limit their agency, um, include them in the hospital, give them very little freedom, experiment on their bodies. Um, and all of this, uh, these sorts of power dynamics were profoundly gendered. Yeah, so the medical gaze is something that comes up again in chapter one, which is called From Home to Hospital, Bedside Medicine versus Hospital Medicine. Um, and historians, I'm going to quote you here, historians have characterized bedside medicine as an informal system of medical theory and practice in which the patient narrative was prominent in the diagnostic process, where patients exerted considerable agency in both diagnosis and treatment, and where treatment was highly individualized according to the sufferer's physiology and pathology. They posit a transition from bedside to hospital medicine that occurred at the turn of the 18th century. This involved a proliferation of hospital-based care and a shift from a patient-centered mode of diagnosis to an object-centered diagnosis, in which the clinician disregarded the patient's experience and narrative. And you also write, rather than attending to the subjective words of the patient, the doctor now found truth through an objective gaze directed at the body. And I'll say to me, as a practitioner of Chinese medicine, this sounds a lot like the distinction we often observe and we rue between Chinese medicine and biomedicine. What were the results for the cancer patients? of the transition from bedside medicine to hospital medicine? I mean, I think the observation you make um, about the distinction between Western biomedicine and Chinese medicine is really apt because this is 
the moment, the kind of crucible of the development of Western biomedicine, this development of hospital medicine and it's all of its associated ideas about the body and the patient, um, you know, is the starting point for the kind of healthcare that that people in Britain and Europe and North America now experience on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and for the cancer patient, um, this transition in emphasis from the person to the tumour um, serves to diminish their needs, their decision-making, their capacity for autonomy and agency over their own bodies in a way that has really far-reaching um, consequences. It also affects the way that people, and by that I mean really doctors, determine um, efficacious treatment or treatment that is effective. Because for an um, object-centered mode of diagnosis and care, um, effective treatment is something that gets rid of the tumor. But for a more person-centered or patient-centered or bedside-centered uh, mode of what counts as effective treatment, that definition is driven by the patient themselves about what they want out of treatment or what they want out of an intervention. Um, and that has definitely had continuing influences on, on how we manage complex, long-standing, chronic or terminal illnesses today, about who gets to decide what a good intervention looks like. Um, and in the early 19th century, the person is increasingly the doctor. I Yes, uh, that that is interesting because I was thinking too of how we have are kind of coming back around to bringing the patient narrative back into the equation today. Um, but you still have, for instance, oncologists convening tumor boards, uh, tumor, yeah, tumor boards every week to talk about their patient, uh, and it's set in that framework of actually a, a tumor rather than a person. Uh, So chapter two is called Incurability and the Clinic. And incurability, the incurability of cancer is a major theme throughout this book. Uh, And as you describe it, the incurability of cancer was a curse for those who suffered from cancer. But it was also an opportunity for what today we might call the stakeholders in the business of cancer. How did the incurability of cancer work in establishing a framework within society that benefited these stakeholders in various ways. So as you mentioned before, this is a period of of medical professionalization. And professionalization is another theme that runs through this book, much like incurability. Um, And part of professionalization of medicine in this period is is a kind of PR campaign, right? It's it's doctors and physicians and surgeons presenting a certain image and identity to the public or to their colleagues um, to try and establish a particular um, reputation or or manage the way that people perceive them. Um, And cancer offers a real opportunity in this regard, because if you establish cancer as an incurable disease, but you say, we are still going to invest time, energy and resources in these people, these people that other people have given up as hopeless, or refuse to even admit into Um, the kind of hospital system, Um, then you have a situation in which you can position yourself as peculiarly humanitarian, peculiarly um, benevolent. You can use cancer and its incurability to articulate a particular professional image and identity that aligns with kind of quite pervasive ideas at the time of, um, uh, you know, contributing to the social good, a sort of um, 
romanticism with a capital R and emotional commitment to the patient's suffering, all of those things work in service of a redefinition of, of the um, professional identity in this period. Doctors and particularly surgeons in the 18th century have a pretty bad reputation as butchers or barbers or people disinterested in, in, the, inter- in, in the needs of their patients. And this is cancer and its incurability is, really effective, is a really effective way of, of shedding some of those older associations and aligning themselves with a new, more humane, more socially useful professional cohort. Yeah, and so it wasn't just the um, the people, the medical men, but medicine itself, as you describe, I'll quote again, the men involved deployed the incurability of cancer to suggest that medicine was a fundamentally humanitarian endeavor, an endeavor that formed a crucial part of the concurrent enlightenment ideals of duty, honor, civility, and virtue. And do you think this was a time, I mean, was this a time where medicine actually made a major shift into humanitarianism? I think it made a major reputational shift into the realm of humanitarianism, whether, I mean, it's a perpetual question, right? Particularly for the cultural historian who only has really written records to go from what the self-presentation of doctors to kind of unpick, you know, to what extent were these surgeons and physicians really invested in their humanitarian goals, and to what extent did the portrayal or presentation of these humanitarian goals serve, you know, individual or professional interests? Um, there is lots of capital to be derived from that kind of self-presentation, um, both social and actual financial capital. Um, but I try to navigate a path between these two and say. This is this does mark a kind of shift in in what medicine actually does offer people with this severe, terrible, dreadful disease, but also is a marks a shift in the way that medicine not only seeks to present itself, but also how medicine is perceived by the public. Um, this is the kind of creation of this is a sort of a moment in the creation of medicine in its current form, as in in the form we now know it to be. Um, Today, medical professionals are, you know, pretty universally lauded. Um, healthcare is seen as a fundamental, you know, what well, right in some places, but at the very least a kind of social good. Um, and this kind of image and identity of healthcare is invented in the 19th century. And I'm not going to say entirely because of its relationship with cancer, but cancer plays a key role in that development. Huh, that's very interesting. And I would say it's kind of a, at least today, a sort of a love-hate relationship with uh, medical professionals because there's this sort of overarching perception of them as humanitarian and serving society. But then many people are are quite uh, bitter also about the, still what you might call the objective medical gaze of doctors. So, and the, um, how divorced it is from human experience. I mean, absolutely, I agree with you. I mean, I, I would also take a similarly kind of critical stance on on much of modern medicine, um, but I think this also might partly come down as well to the to the national specificity of Britain, um, which in which there are those kind of you know voices of dissent, as it were, but they still are very much a kind of countercultural force rather than part of the mainstream, um, and also the NHS, obviously 
has a very particular yes. identity and a very particular emotional bond between the British public and their healthcare systems. Um, so I think, which is not to say that people don't love doctors or don't appreciate healthcare in, say, the US, but I do think there's a slightly different character to that relationship and to that public persona. Yes, I agree with you. Having lived in Britain for um, over a decade, I certainly had that impression too of the NHS. So I want to move into chapter three, which is about uh, the things that the medical men were actually doing to uh, relieve cancer, let's say. It's called Cancer Therapeutics. And here you write about the shifting role of surgery, also known as the knife. And that's a term which makes it sound really ominous. And, And it was. Surgery was quite horrible, especially before anesthesia. But the shifting role was from potentially curative to palliative. And you write about how surgeons who had gained this kind of status, as you say, professional status, and particularly based on the idea they might be able to cure cancer, now had to renegotiate their role as people who could not cure cancer, but they were able to palliate it. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's the, um, sorry. (laughs) No, no, go go ahead. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. I mean, that is the kind of, um, it's very similar in some ways to what I was saying about um, medicine's humanitarianism, is that um, surgery is really undergoing a very profound shift in the early 19th century. As I said before, their reputation in the 18th century, compared with, say, physicians or people who are interested in internal medicine, um, they have a much worse reputation, partly because they almost exclusively trained by apprenticeship rather than having higher degrees from Oxford or Cambridge. And so they have a very, um, they have a sort of relatively lowly position in the medical hierarchy, um, in the clinical healthcare hierarchy. Um, And in the early 19th century, they sort of catapult themselves upwards. Um, They reconfigure what their role and um, what their status is as as respected to um, physicians, say. Um, And, but this sort of, newfound kind of power I suppose comes with a newfound responsibility in that they um they want to be to demonstrate their utility their their value um but they're also at the same time recognizing or articulating cancer as an incurable disease um and so they have to find a new role for themselves within that they have to re-identify um what it is that they can offer cancer patients because if cancer patients are coming in and saying please treat my disease and surgeons, particularly elite surgeons, are saying, well, this is an incurable disease. Um, the the kind of uh, conclusion you might draw from that is we have nothing to offer you. Go home and die, die at home. Or, or you know, we, we don't have anything to provide um, you with. And so they have to say, OK, well, we do actually have this thing. We have this thing called palliative surgery. And palliative is a term that they used in the early 19th century. It's not my um, phrasing. It's, it's theirs. Um, and they they reinvent this kind of or invent this kind of new category of intervention they say all right well we, we can operate but the function of that operation is not to cure the disease it's not to eradicate the disease it's to alleviate suffering um, and prolong life and this is something that they managed to rearticulate incredibly effectively um, and they continue operating cancer surgeries only increase across the 19th century and surgery becomes really the only method of intervention that elite practitioners kind of will admit to or will acknowledge as useful. Um, And it is still the frontline treatment for almost all cancers. Um, And so surgeons do a really good job of kind of 
um, land grabbing cancer in this period. They sort of identify it as something that they can contribute to and then they they contribute to it, but in a very kind of particular way um, that involves some a, a degree of, of, of uh, sort of rhetorical gymnastics, as it were. Hmm. Uh, land grabbing. I like that. <laughs> and it, it was also interesting to me that once cancer patients began to be widely treated in hospitals, the efficacy of the treatments became clearer. And it began to be what I would call an evidence-based medicine. Uh, for instance, there were statistical tables showing that compression, which had been used as a treatment, was not effective. But when it comes to palliative care, it was kind of the opposite. Only qualitative data, narrative case histories, could describe its effectiveness in terms of uh, quality of life. Absolutely. I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about before about the transition from bedside to hospital medicine. Conventionally, in that in that transition, hospital medicine um, reduces or eliminates the need to include long patient narratives in hospital case notes because you're now just looking at indications on the body. You don't need to hear what the patient has to say for themselves. But in the case of cancer, that transition is disrupted or problematized or nuanced in that if you are doing a treatment that is designed to improve um, the patient's sense of well-being or or feeling of um, happiness and satisfaction or the elimination of pain, you cannot measure that through objective markers. You cannot measure that from signs in the body. You can only measure that by asking patients to report their own assessment of the treatment, their own assessment of its efficacy. Um, So for instance, if you are assessing whether a treatment works in terms of whether it saves lives, then you can look at, you know, how long has someone been alive for? Has the disease, you know, do they, um, are they still, (laughs) are they still alive basically so many years later? But if you're asking people, has this treatment, has this palliative surgery ameliorated your suffering? There are no figures for that. You have to listen to what they have to say. Um, and so you get in, in the Middlesex Hospital's case notes, really long patient narratives pretty much throughout the 19th century, um, whereas the long patient narrative kind of reduces or, 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 is, or is slowly um, erased from the hospital record in other disease situations. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary to me that there were these long case histories that were narrated and that were available to you. Was that typical that those would have been kept uh, for this long? Because, of course, this was way, way, way before we had any sort of computerized records. Yeah, no, I was very lucky. (laughs) I mean, lucky in so far as I got to read all of these interesting stories that um, the Middlesex Hospital closed in 2006. um, And which makes it even more surprising that these things survived. Most hospitals in the UK got rid of their patient notes um, either at the beginning of the 20th century or at the foundation, the moment of the NHS's foundation in 1948 due to kind of restructuring or institutional um, moving around, you know, case notes, paper archives take up a lot of space. And there's also questions about kind of ethics about who has access to patient to, to reports or resources that identify patients by name or by location. Um, And so it is quite unusual to find 19th century patient case notes in the UK that still exist. Um, It's not, it's not the only hospital that has, has done this, but is, is relatively rare. 
And so I was very fortunate to, and, and really the, pro, the book project um, comes from this archive, right? I, I deal with other things and I use lots of other pieces of source material, but really the, the core is this, um, the records of this amazing institution. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, chapter four, you get into talking about other kinds of treatments. It, it's called cancer quackery. And I have to admit a particular interest in this chapter belonging to a profession that has sometimes been accused of quackery or sometimes still is. And here you write, to be a quack was to offer a cure. Is that in a nutshell the difference between quacks and legitimate medical men that the quack said, we've got a cure, whereas the medical men had to admit that they didn't? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you have people quite literally referring to um, quacks as cancer curers. This becomes a sort of synonym for cancer quack, cancer curer. Um, But I think what's most interesting to me or or most important thing to recognise about 19th century medicine is that quackery then, I mean, arguably still today, is very much in the eye of the beholder. Um, People are determined quacks by their opponents. It's a kind of denigration. Um, And so there is no sort of core definition of what a quack is in the 19th century um, because we're well before any kind of real concrete um, certification or or these things do start to, to emerge in the second half of the century. But um, you have medical identity and who counts as orthodox or unorthodox being very much a kind of cultural problem or a cultural phenomenon, something that is manifested by the way people style themselves, the way they present their information, the way they kind of market what they can offer people. Um, you know, these are as much sort of stylistic questions as they are questions about what people actually do for their patients and what the actual content of the treatment is. And the thing that's really interesting, I think, about cancer is that it um, this this accusation of cancer curers or people who can cure cancer as quacks means that the accusation of quackery can be levied at people who otherwise have all of the markers of orthodoxy. So you have a rival cancer hospital in the 19th century, um, which was called um, the Royal Cancer Hospital, which is now called the Royal Marsden Hospital, which is one of the leading kind of cancer institutions in the world in London. Um, in the 19th century, even people who are working within this institution with all the right training and credentials, because they start to say that they can cure cancer, start to be accused as uh, of being quacks by um, the medical journals, particularly the Lancet and the British Medical Journal. Um, and this, I think, is the sort of fundamental problem with thinking about quackery is that we tend to think of quackery as this sort of stable category. It's just this thing that people are because of what they do. But actually, it's far more contingent and contested. Um, and what ends up being orthodoxy or what ends up being unorthodoxy is a historical process. It is something that we have made. It is not something you know inherent in the in the content of what medical practitioners and um, how medical practitioners work at various points in time. Yeah, and was it difficult to actually tell? if there were cases of people being cured, because um, as I recall, there were a certain number of cases that were said to be cured, but then the accusation was, well, that was a misdiagnosis, that wasn't cancer to begin with. Was it not always clear whether someone had a diagnosis of cancer who who supposedly survived it? Absolutely. I mean, cancer 
is difficult to diagnose in the 19th century. It's difficult to diagnose in some cases even today. Um, And it shared a lot of um, signs and symptoms with other illnesses, particularly um, consumption, which now we talk about uh, tuberculosis. Um, And a lot of cancers, especially if they originated somewhere inside the body rather than on the skin surface, could have very diffuse or difficult to pin down um, signs or, or signifiers. Um, and so, of course, it was very difficult to um, diagnose cancer. But this is one of the most interesting things, I think, about this question about incurability, is that, that that discussion about when you say, well, I'm going to, you've claimed to have cured cancer, but I'm going to say no, because the very inherent essence of cancer is that it is incurable. But if you claim to have cured something, then it cannot have been cancer. That so closely ties incurability and cancer together that it makes incurability a fundamental feature of the disease, not just a kind of incidental detail. You, it can, if it is in, if it is curable, then it cannot be cancer. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. And if you can cure it, then you are not a true, legitimate medical person. Yeah, you're either lying or your skills are flawed because you failed to accurately diagnose something in the first place. And um, so either you are kind of acting with like malevolence or dishonesty, or you're just not a very good doctor or diagnostician. Hmm. Interesting. Then chapter five is about mapping, uh, kind of epidemiological mapping. It's called Counting and Mapping Cancer. And you write about Dr. Alfred Haviland and the maps that he created, the epidemiological maps of rural bucolic Britain in particular, this area that was supposed to be uh, bursting with health, and that this was a time when the urban areas were seen as kind of um, cauldrons of disease. And Dr. Haviland was coming from a standpoint of public health and an interest in environmental determinants of health, plus the idea that cancer was this growing epidemic. What were some of the implications of Haviland's mapping? Um, I think the key implication of his mapping was, you know, in many ways unintentional. Um, but today we tend to, or at least for much of the 20th century, associate in very diffuse ways cancer with affluence or with health. And this often takes um, a kind of global framing, right, that we think of cancer as something that is sort of peculiar to industrialized or post-industrial societies that doesn't seem to predominate in, say, the global south in quite the same way that it feels like a disease that is a product of our progress, a consequence of civilization, a consequence of all these things that we have done to improve the quality of our quality of life. Um, And Haviland is really the initiator of that conceptualization because he situates cancer so firmly in these areas of not just bucolic beauty, but also of health and of, of health with a kind of significance for the for this sustenance of the nation state so he situates cancer in the lake district and the thames valley two areas of kind of outstanding natural beauty in britain but also two areas that are um invested with a lot of meaning in the 19th century as places that kind of manifest what it means to be english um and that kind of um so these are kind of pregnant with with meaning these places pregnant with emotion and then to put cancer at the very heart of those locales um says something quite sort of potentially troubling about um affluence itself about the consequences of affluence or the consequences of of good sort of social health um 
And it also sets cancer on this sort of funny journey where it becomes increasingly associated with progress um, and with um, even modernity. Um, and so that's this sort of, and I think, yeah, as I said, kind of unintentional um, consequence of his work. Yeah, and yet he didn't really link the cancer in rural Britain to really lifestyle so much, did he, as it was to the, the soil and the geological formations that existed there? Is that right? Absolutely. So he has a real um, aversion to clay soil and a real love for limestone. He writes sort of quite um, charmingly about how wonderful limestone is at various points in his work. Um, And he has this complex etiology of cancer that is about the quality of the soil. And then later, as germ theories of disease start to develop, he kind of reconfigures that as a a slightly, um, that there are some sort of microbes hidden in the soil and that are particularly prominent or common in clay soils that then predispose the body to cancer, not quite in a kind of infectious sense, but they kind of make someone more likely to, to, to succumb to this illness. Um, but his, the thing that's interesting to me about 19th century doctors quite so often, and particularly about Haviland, is how imprecise a lot of their, um, their mechanisms for disease causation were. And I don't mean to say that um, dismiss them as saying, oh, well, they just, that their, their, the quality of their medical understanding was, was, was less good than it is today, but even a lot according to their, the terms of their own era, that they often put forward sort of very messy or incomplete um, ideas about, about the precise mechanism of disease causation. And also Haviland's data was terrible. If you actually look at the data he uses to make his claims about the geographical distribution of cancer in the 19th century, um, his, his conclusions about where are particularly cancerous places don't really hold up. Um, <clears throat> but I think this makes him even more interesting because it suggests to me that he is not necessarily driven by the evidence, but he's driven by other another set of assumptions um, about what um, cancer is or could be or indicates about society and about his country. Hmm. And I had just been going to ask you about if there was a historical perspective on the accuracy of his map. So you've answered that, but what was the public response? I mean, was there a lot of um, public knowledge of his maps? And if so, what did the public think of it? Were they alarmed about living in the country? So he, um, his maps weren't partic- didn't have a particular take up amongst the public. They do get very a lot of attention from his medical colleagues. So there's a lot of um, coverage of his conclusions in um, uh, like places like the British Medical Journal and the Lancet, um, and a lot of correspondence about his um, the implications of his work, um, and this. He's he's received very approvingly. People think that this is a very, um, uh, you know, troubling indication. And Haviland himself makes sort of practical recommendations to people's doctors and says, if someone is diagnosed with cancer or if you suspect someone might be diagnosed with with cancer or if they have a particular um, family predisposition to it, you should send them to these places because it might protect them or it might, um, you know, ameliorate some of their symptoms or it might delay the onset of, of death. Um, and this this idea is taken up by a lot of doctors who think this is a great a great suggestion, um, but it's taken up in much more diffuse ways um, 
in that it's then later applied. And I talk about this in chapter seven, so I don't want to prefigure any discussions we might have. Um, but it's taken up in much more diffuse ways when people start looking abroad, when people start thinking about cancer in the British colonies. Um, and that's where the real legacy of his work lies um, and sort of solidifies this association between cancer and affluence or cancer and civilization. Yes, uh, questions we still are, or topics that we still talk about today with some great interest. So you did mention Haviland's uh, bringing up different theories of cancer genesis. And chapter six is called Under the Microscope, and it's about those theories, specifically cell theory, bacteriology, and parasitology. And at this time, hospital medicine began generating laboratory medicine. Could you describe just some of the most prominent theories that arose during the time? So the kind of classic um theory that's associated with cancer that we still use to think about cancer is cell theory. Um, this idea that diseases um, are, or particularly cancer, is a product of aberrations within the cell, that diseases are a product of, of things internal to the body, um, that, that there is something that, this, that cancer is normal, healthy processes of cell division gone awry or no longer being checked by by other systems in the body um, and this is broadly speaking how we still think about cancer um, and this was very much a kind of internal model of cancer causation that there is nothing external to the body but this is something that just happens as a product of a quirk or an error within the body's own internal makeup um, but in the 1870s um, a new idea comes into um, circulation um, dependent on uh, as I mentioned before, the development of germ theories of disease or bacteriology. Um, doctors identify, or research scientists identify individual bacteria as causes of specific diseases, um, most um, perhaps most famously tuberculosis. Um, there's a bacteria identified that causes tuberculosis. And um, this has a profound impact on the way that people think about and research cancer in the late 19th century. People start to think that maybe there is a cancer germ, a cancer bacteria, or even a cancer virus, um, and that cancer might be contagious, that it might be passed from person to person. Um, and this is profoundly troubling for people because it suggests that perhaps um, cancer is like other epidemic diseases, other epidemic diseases that people are so familiar with that sort of rush through um, sort of societies or communities. Um, and, and this also serves to explain um, a perceived increase in cancer incidence. So there's a lot of anxiety um, in all sorts of venues, from medical journals to places like Vogue magazine, that cancer seems to be increasing in quantity in British society and American society as well. Um, and that one explanation for this is that, that cancer is, a, is an infectious disease, that it's, a, it's like cholera. It has its own sort of peaks and troughs. It expands in society and then contracts. Um, and this is both very troubling, but also quite reassuring in some ways, because it means that maybe one solution to the cancer problem is other mechanisms and methods that people have, public health methods that people have been using to some degree of, um, uh, to some effect, like quarantine or preventing people from moving um, from place to place um, or identifying sick people, keeping them away from others, all that kind of thing. And maybe you could deploy similar strategies in the case of cancer and, and resolve this sort of increasingly pressing problem in society. Um, Unfortunately, they never identify a bacteria that causes cancer. Um, they do identify some viruses, but that happens later um, 
into the 20th century. And so I don't really talk about it so much in the book, but that's an interesting kind of side trajectory of the cancer story. Um, But really the debate in the end of the 19th century is whether cancer is an internal or external disease, something that comes, that invades your body from without or something that's fundamentally wrong with the body from within. Yeah, and as you say, there was this perception, belief that cancer was increasing in incidence it was called an epidemic. Uh, does data support that? Do we know? Was it really increasing throughout this period? I mean, it's a great question. Um, but it, it's interestingly a question that they were grappling with themselves at the time. Um, so it's very difficult to determine whether the increase in incidents that seem to appear in death rate statistics and, and, and in national kind of appraisals of, of sickness um, was a real increase, as in more and more people were actually contracting cancer and dying from it, or an apparent increase, whereby actually what was happening is a sort of range of different things from better surveillance, so more people um, having doctors certifying their death and identifying what was wrong with them or what the cause of death was, more people dying in hospitals, um, better trained doctors, doctors who are more familiar with the signs and symptoms of cancer, um, all yours, and, 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 and related to that, um, the increase is real, but it's associated with um, things like increased life expectancy. Cancer is um, predominantly a disease of old age. And so if people live longer, then more people are going to get it. Um, lower rates of infant mortality, better nutrition, so people aren't contracting diseases of deficiency or infection like they have been before, like rickets or typhus or typhoid. Um and all these things are happening at the end of the 19th century. Society is becoming, broadly speaking, healthier. Um, and so it makes sense for there to be an increasing cancer epidemic in a kind of weird, paradoxical way. Um, I think probably the increase was this sort of second category, this kind of more apparent increase. I don't think that there is some sort of sudden epidemic of cancer in the late 19th century. Um, but it's more interesting to me, I suppose, that people of the 19th in the 19th century were grappling with this um, this problem, this question. Um, and people were very afraid of a cancer epidemic. There was a lot of um, soul-searching, kind of anxious sort of op-eds <laughs> written about the cancer epidemic. And it's a real palpable um, fear um, and, and and comes up in all sorts of places. Yeah, well, and as you write about in different parts of the book, it really was a, an awful disease, especially as it was diagnosed later in stage and people would have these uh, advanced tumors that were erupting from the body and uh, you know the smell was so awful people wouldn't come into the same room with them so it it was it's quite a horrible disease now but in, in some ways even more horrible then because even with the palliative surgeon's care uh, the palliation wasn't as maybe effective as it is now Absolutely. I mean, I think for all of my efforts to kind of indicate a sense of continuity between the 19th century and today, um, I think one of the big differences is this sort of the materiality, the kind of sensory experience of cancer, the embodied experience of cancer in the 19th century was so different because people today very, very rarely, I mean, in the West at least, um, will most people are diagnosed relatively early, well before, you know, obvious physical manifestations of their tumours. Um, and in the 19th century, that just wasn't the case. And so you'd have people presenting in hospitals with, you know, tumours the size of, size of grapefruits, the size of 
um, loads of bread that are not just huge, but also separating and ulcerating. So as the tumours get larger, they lose their kind of internal integrity and collapse and start to effectively um, rot while still part of the body. Um, And you have some incredibly visceral descriptions of smell and disgust and abjection that accompanies the cancerous body in the 19th century that really isn't so much a part of, thankfully, um, the kind of cancer experience today. Um, and and so cancer has this really powerful um, kind of cultural and public profile that makes any indication of its increase particularly troubling. Um, and it's also worth pointing out as well that the public were often um, sort of subjected to this materiality, even if they didn't actually know anyone with cancer, because um, the 19th century press was very frank in its coverage of cancer. So um, whereas often, you know, particularly in the 20th century, you have obituaries that will record, um, they won't necessarily say what someone, they, they use euphemisms, passed away after a long illness, that kind of thing. 19th century obituaries do not uh, adhere to those sorts of norms um, and will describe in very vis- vi- like vi- vivid detail um, the consequences and sort of profile of someone's disease and, and, and how they died. Um, and so if you were part of the reading public in the 19th century, you would definitely know about cancer and quite how bad it could be. Yeah, that's interesting when you talk about the different lived experience, because, and I know this isn't your uh, historical period that you're covering right now, but what you would see now as uh, the image of of suffering from cancer is actually suffering from the treatment for cancer, which is the results of chemotherapy and radiation is what we see very visibly, uh, rather than the effects of the cancer itself. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's one of the other things that's so interesting is that some some of the treatments that were used to treat cancer in the 19th century, like caustics, like acids that were used to burn through cancerous tumours, we might think of them today as particularly barbaric or kind of cruel almost. Um, but they were, you know, very similar in lots of ways to, to the kind of chemotherapies that we still use, although albeit um, with different degrees of efficacy. But yeah, it was definitely... Um, it's definitely a big part, I think, of the public persona of cancer now. It's hair loss or, or these sorts of consequences of treatment rather than the consequences of the disease itself. Right. And who knows, someday in future, we may be looking at the treatments that we have now as barbaric and cruel. Absolutely. Um, which gets us into modernity <laughs> and, and chapter seven, which is called Making Cancer Modern. And as you note at the beginning of the chapter, cancer today is seen largely as a consequence of modern civilization. Uh, pollution, chemicals, environmental changes, unhealthy lifestyles, stress, and as you mentioned, living longer. But you set out to show that cancer became a disease of civilization in late Victorian Britain. And I think people now would be interested in how that period compared to today in its understanding of both modernity and of how cancer was linked to it. I mean, I mentioned this at the very beginning, but I think this is one of the, I suppose, key arguments or maybe contributions of the book is that um, we tend to think of cancer as very much a product of the 20th century tied to things like Nixon's war on cancer, kind of product of the like post-war, Cold War period. Um, and what I try to show in my book is that it, it was very much a part of the fabric of 19th century life, but also that it was formed the kind of cancer we know and love today was made in the 19th century and in response to very specific 19th century circumstances and settings um 
And at the end of the 19th, I mean, the late 19th century, the kind of fin de siècle period is, is maybe my favorite period in history. Um, it is a funny, um, strange uh, kind of moment in time full of uh, great characters with, with interesting ideas about the world, but it's also a kind of profoundly anxious time. Um, there's a lot, particularly in Britain, of sort of self-satisfaction of thinking of themselves at the very pinnacle of like global progress as so at the top of the of the of the worldwide pecking order they've managed to colonize you know much of the globe very pleased with themselves for that see themselves as um having achieved a great deal of of industrial progress of of scientific progress um but also a lot of anxiety about what was going to come next um about whether they'd maybe reached the um, end of the road, maybe that they, maybe the British Empire, like the Roman Empire, was set on an irreversible trajectory towards decline. And cancer plays a big role in this sort of anxiety, and also in these sorts of ideas about success. They're very pleased with that, you know, how much better they understand cancer now than they did 100 years ago. Um, But they're also very aware that they maybe haven't made the progress that they would have liked to have made or that they predicted they would make at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, And they're also very anxious about this cancer epidemic. And they're very anxious about, you know, what that cancer epidemic might indicate about the state of Victorian society and the future of Victorian society. You know, is there a kind of planned obsolescence, both in the bodies of individual people, but also in nation states or empires? Do they have a kind of natural... Um, point of uh, a natural internal built-in limit are they going to collapse at some point Um, and I think cancer today plays into some very fundamental anxieties people have about um, mortality about the um, sort of function of medicine about what medicine is supposed to be able to offer people about the coherence and and sort of design almost of the human body. Um, and all of those anxieties, although very profoundly felt, are also kind of historical phenomena. They are built in the kind of late 19th century period. And you can map a lot of anxieties about society onto anxieties about cancer and vice versa. Yeah. And yet it's interesting that while this was seen as a result perhaps of a um, higher civilization, as the British Empire was going out, and um, I would say maybe part of the imperial project, they were seeing that they, they a lot of it had to do with the uh, proliferation of or dissemination of science and medicine to those parts of the empire. And what they saw there was that the local people we're not suffering from cancer at nearly the same rates, or in some cases there was very low prevalence or no prevalence of cancer. So how did they reconcile that, um, that absence of cancer and the idea that cancer is this signal of the, the decadence or the ob- beginning of obsolescence of a society? I mean, they reconcile it very badly, <laughs> I think, or at least it's a kind of a, it's an ongoing problem for a lot of people because you know, as they say, they're going out to these communities, these societies that they have for so long denigrated as inferior, as in some way failing or lacking. Um, And yet they don't have this, they don't seem to have this disease problem that 
British people or English people have, um, which is a kind of increasingly massive cancer burden. Um, And so what they do about that is a kind of classic example of of Victorian mental gymnastics. I've talked a bit about this before. It's also a kind of recurring theme, I think, in any history of the 19th century. Um, People then were very good at at, at using language to justify all sorts of strange things. Um, And they say, okay, sure, right, cancer seems to be a product of civilization. It seems to be a product of progress. Um, And that could cause us maybe to question some of the assumptions we make about what a good society looks like. And there are people who say, you know, we've gone too far in Britain, we need to go back to our roots, we need to be more like these communities that we are colonizing. And we need to be more in tune with nature. And this is all very, a kind of, a very Eurocentric vision of what these communities and cultures are like, right? I'm not saying this is necessarily a better, (laughs) better set of interpretations. But they say, okay, well, we need to return to nature in some way. We need to align our societies and lifestyles more and to be more in keeping with these um, you know, these people, these communities that we are um, imposing rule over. Um, and there are some people who say that. And then there are some people who say, no, this is actually just further justification for our superiority. Cancer is just the price we pay for success, for mm-hmm. social success. Um, and, and that's fine. You know, that's just an indicator that we've done well. And so it's this weird sort of reinterpretation, this reconceptualization of what cancer is, that it's, you know, simultaneously a terrible disease with profound physical and emotional consequences. But it is also a marker of everything that we are good at, an indicator of our success. Um, and I think in in weird ways, cancer retains that sort of strange dichotomy. Um, it, and it has become increasingly embedded in our lives. It is such a part of, 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 of conversation, of debate, of national identity. And it's a still a key way that we use to assess the quality of healthcare systems and of, of, of public health practices. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we always come up that well. Britain is, is, is pretty bad when it comes to kind of global comparisons of cancer life expectancy and, and early identification. But it, that is still so fundamental to the way the healthcare is set up, you know, is also a sort of strange inheritance of this 19th century moment. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, Agnes, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you one final question, which is, uh, in the conclusion, you say that cancer touches or will touch almost everyone. And you mentioned, as you did at the beginning of our interview, that it touched you personally during your research and while you were writing this book. And since you're a historian of both emotions and medicine, how did you find your work on the book affected you on a personal level? And has it influenced the way you feel about people dealing with cancer today? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, because I think historians, like so many academics or researchers, are, are, are kind of required to be or expected to be objective in their work to kind of create a sort of critical distance between themselves and the past, and also to acknowledge, which, you know, I hope I do, that that the past is a very different place today, that, you know, for as much as we can kind of identify continuities, we also need to acknowledge the specificity of different places and and, and time periods. Um, Obviously, cancer in the 19th century is not the same as cancer is today. Um, But I think um, 
I would push back and say that having a degree of emotional investment and acknowledging that investment um, can be a really important part of the kind of historical process. Um, it's also, I think, a fiction um, to even imply that any historian or any researcher can do their work completely free of emotional investment or emotional inflection. Like, I think we have to be honest about <laughs> the, the the degree to which we always bring our own our own stuff to the stuff we study. Um, and I think in this case, I hope that um, my experience, my personal experience with cancer has fed into the book in as much as I hope it is a empathetic book, a book that is, I've tried to understand or seek to understand or to try and um, show kind of compassion or, or put myself in the position of people in the past um, and to think about, what it was actually like to live with this disease then um, and what it was actually like to care for people with this disease then. Um, Try to not reduce historical actors down to um, sort of ciphers for big historical trends and rather to see how they as individuals encountered this disease and how how emotions figured in those encounters. Um, And it has, I think... um, in some ways, writing this book and and my own experience with cancer has sort of politicised my attitude to cancer care today. Um, It has made me think about the assumptions that we make about what constitutes good care, about what we think about when we talk about curing cancer, whether that's a a worthwhile goal or an achievable goal um, as a sort of society rather than on an individual basis. Um, and it has made me very critical of the way that healthcare functions now. Um, and I hope that people reading this book will, at the very least, it will at the very least prompt them to ask some questions of healthcare now. Um, even if they don't come to my, the same conclusions that I do, I'd love it to prompt some sort of, you know, reckoning, and even in a very small way. Yeah, and I think you have just made the best case for people to read your book right there. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't have to repeat it. But I will say that I, I'm not normally a great fan of reading books about cancer. Um, I too have had quite some experience with cancer personally um, and professionally. And it's not something that I normally enjoy reading about. But I, I was attracted to your book and I did very much enjoy reading it. And I have to say, I did not feel depressed. <laughs> while reading it or after reading it uh, for those reasons that it is a, a really human book and gives us a lot of insight into uh, the lived experience of people who were involved with cancer in one way or another. So I do hope people will read it. And it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you today, Agnes. Thank you so and much. I wish you Oh, oh I was just going to say that I wish you the best in your uh, new life once you get out of quarantine in Montreal at McGill University. Thank you so much. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. And it's so nice to talk to someone who's who's read my work with such care and attention. Um, so I'm very, very grateful. And it's been a real joy.